There was a husband and wife. They got up for church one Sunday morning. And uh, the odd thing is that this husband had done nothing to prepare himself for going to church. And the wife was dressed, ready to go, about ready to head out the door. And she saw that her husband was kind of in his bathrobe and slippers. And she said, honey, you better get dressed. We've got to go to church. He said, well, I'm not going today. Excuse me, she said. What do you mean you're not going? That's right, I'm not going. Can you tell me why, she demanded. I'll give you three reasons why I'm not going to church. Number one, the people in that church are cold and unloving. Number two, nobody likes me there. And number three, I don't feel like going. She said, well, honey, let me balance that out and give you three reasons why you should go. Number one, people are warm and friendly at that church. Number two, there's a few people who like you. And number three, you are the pastor, honey. Now, I want you to know, I don't feel that way this morning. I feel very warmed and welcomed by you all. I have been serving in a church for almost 23 years in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a church that the Lord used us to start. And um, it was a wonderful time. It was the kind of fellowship that I looked forward to going to. And I got to tell you, I have looked forward to coming here now for a long time for the new opportunity, the new challenge, the new family that God has provided. And so we're thankful. It's something that we have looked forward to for a long time. Um, Today, I've turned to Psalm 84. I'd like to begin a series next week, beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanted to look at the, the psalm of a worshiper on his way to church, so to speak. He is wanting to go to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, the place where the temple stood. And it's his longing to worship. In fact, this guy is excited even about the journey on the way to worship. There was a... Uh, Sunday school class, I think it was age seven, and uh, one little boy was particularly outspoken, and he said in the middle of the class, out loud to the teacher, could you hurry up? This is boring. Well, the little girl next to the guy jabbed him in the ribs with her elbow and said, shut up, it's church, it's supposed to be boring. <laughs> but I've discovered, as I'm sure you have, that when a life is touched by God, that gathering with God's people can be very exciting. And as I've said here in Psalm 84, as you'll discover, the psalmist is excited about this long walk, a pilgrimage on the way to Jerusalem. When I read through Psalm 84, it reminded me of all the times I had been in India. And the first time I went to India, I was amazed to hear the stories of people who said they walked for hours to get to church. And then once they're there, they want about a four-hour worship service. So I was there. I gave them like a full-hour message. And they said, not so fast, buddy. You have only just started. And we went all the way through about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And here we read about a worshiper coming to Jerusalem who, who's excited about it. Now, you'll notice at the very beginning of the psalm, even before verse 1, that it's written by the sons of Korah. You may remember back in the Old Testament that there were basically two worship teams in the temple that were alternate teams. One was the sons of Asaph. The others were the sons of Korah. But the sons of Korah had a particular job assignment. They were the porters, the doorkeepers or the gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. 
Now you keep that in mind because we're going to read that in the psalm toward the end. But just in terms of background, in 1 Chronicles 9, we read the Korahites were in charge of the work of the service. They were gatekeepers in the tabernacle. So you're about to read the words of a gatekeeper, one very stoked gatekeeper who writes this psalm. And I want to begin in verse 1 and 2 by noticing the place of worship. How lovely, he begins, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, what was so special about this temple that was in Jerusalem that the psalmist would write these words? It was magnificent, certainly. But what was the big deal about the place? I ask that question because you may remember that Stephen in the New Testament said, for the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. In fact, even Solomon, who built the temple, said, who can build him a temple? For even heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, much less this house which I have built. So what was the draw in this worshiper's mind that he would say, oh, how lovely are your courts, your tabernacles, O Lord of hosts? Simply this. The temple was the place where people came to meet with God. It really wasn't about the place as much as the one whose glory filled that place. That was the draw of this worshiper. In fact, you'll notice in verse 2, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He wasn't as excited about the temple as much as the God who lived in the temple, the God that they were coming to meet. And so he uses the place as a replacement for the one that he came to meet. That's why he says, my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Let me ask you a question. What makes a house a home besides mom? It's the people who occupy the house. It's not the stuff you have in it. It's not the pictures on the wall or the piano in the corner. It's the people who are there. And that should be the draw of coming to church. It's more than the building. It's more than the personality. It's more than the convenience. In fact, some of you were very inconvenienced today to try to get in this parking lot. But you come because it's the place we're going to corporately gather and meet the Lord and worship the Lord. And I guess the desire all depends on whether or not you have a relationship with God. Because if you do, you're going to say, I can't wait to come to church. If not, then church is boring and irrelevant and something that's really not looked forward to going to. When my wife, Lenya, who's sitting up here in the front, first came to Christ many, many years ago and we were going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, she went literally every night of the week. Every single night there was something going on and every single night she was there. She couldn't wait to get there because she wanted to learn for what God had for her. Uh, there was a pastor that was speaking to his congregation about this and uh, he, he said something interesting. I'm going to relate it to you. He said, all I ask is that we apply the same standards of faithfulness to our church activities that we would in other areas of our life. That doesn't seem too much to ask. The church, after all, is concerned about faithfulness. Consider these examples. If your car started one out of three times, would you consider it faithful? 
If the paper boys skipped Mondays and Thursdays, would they be missed? If you didn't show up at work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit a day now and then, would you excuse it and say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If your water heater greets you with cold water one or two mornings a week while you're in the shower, would it be faithful? If you miss a couple of mortgage payments in a year's time, would your mortgage holder say, oh, well, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? If you attend worship meetings only often enough to show you're interested, but not often enough to get involved, are you faithful? It was Jesus who said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it would just make sense that if you treasure the Lord, then you're going to treasure the place where God gathers with his people. Now, I want you to look at the next two verses. That's the place of worship. The next two verses are concerned with the peace that comes from worship. Even the sparrow, the psalmist says, has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Interesting that this psalmist uses a couple of different birds. Evidently, this guy came into the temple and looked around and noticed that there were a lot of birds in that place. It was an open courtyard and it was an open building. But he mentions two birds that I think are interesting. First is the sparrow. The sparrow was considered relatively a worthless bird for the most part. It would seem that young boys in Jerusalem would catch sparrows and sell them just to make some extra spending money, like a couple bucks. Jesus alluded to this in Matthew 10 when he said, are not two sparrows sold for one farthing? They were worthless. And it's interesting that though that may have been true, they have found a home in the temple. They're building a nest here in the temple. They're provided for, you might say, by God. Here's my point. This morning, you might feel a sense of worthlessness. You kind of look at your life, you look around, you think, boy, I don't have much to offer the Lord. I feel kind of worthless. I'm going through a lawsuit right now, or I'm going through a divorce, or whatever it might be that would lend to that feeling. Understand that you have a God who cares, who will be your refuge. You could come to him, you could pour out your heart to him, and he would love it. You might say, well, Skip, that's nice to hear, but I sort of feel even my, my prayers are worthless before God. Listen to what Richard Foster writes. Remember that just as a child cannot draw a bad picture, a child of God cannot utter a bad prayer. God's heart is open, eager, and waiting for us. We can just hang out with God, just waste time with God. Of course, the point is, it's never a waste of time. For Jesus said, are you not of more value than many sparrows? Then there are swallows that are mentioned, and uh, swallows are considered restless birds. I guess if anyone would, would know that, it would be the residents of this area, San Juan Capistrano, because you are recipients of their pilgrimage every year. They travel 6,000 miles, as you know, from Goya Corrientes, Argentina, all the way here to San Juan Capistrano. They're considered restless just in the way they they move and feed. They eat while they fly. Did you know that? They get low to the ground looking for those insects and then they're up and it's sort of like Orange County residents. They eat on the run. Busy, 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 restless, moving to and fro. Those are the sparrows. 
However, when it comes time for the sparrow to mate and to raise a family, that's when they build a nest and they settle down. And it is said when they settle down, when they're at rest, when they're at peace, they sing this sweet, low-toned melody that speaks of their contentment, their peace, their restfulness. And what a great picture of worship coming into a place of refuge into God's presence where we might feel beat up and restless, but we can be ourselves, or we might be busy all week long, but we come for this place to focus in on the Lord. We're contented, thus we sing. A couple from Moody Bible Institute, they went down to Mexico and they spent 25 years of their life down there. Their name's John and Eileen Beekman. God called them to minister among the coal Indians. 25 years of their life, they spent translating the New Testament into the coal language. Today, there are over 12,000 believers, thriving community of Christians among the coal Indians. It's a self-supporting community. But the Beekmans discovered an interesting fact. This group of Indians didn't sing. That wasn't a part of their culture until the gospel came. Once the gospel came, believers were known by other tribes people as the singers because they would hear them as they would go by their meeting places, their congregations, their small groups. They're singing. And it's because now they have something to sing about. God put a song in their hearts like that flitting and busy swallow. They're now at rest and they're singing because they're contented. So that's the peace that the psalmist speaks about in worship. Look at the next couple of verses. This is the pilgrimage of the worshipers. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, verse 5, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. You might say this is their drive to church. They're on their way from wherever they live in Israel and they're on their way making a pilgrimage to the temple. Now keep in mind that they didn't come to the temple every Sabbath, every Shabbat, every weekend like we come to church. They would go to their synagogues later on, but for the most part, people scattered throughout the country would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, three major times each year. Number one was Pesach, or Passover. Number two, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and then Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. These three great convocations these three great meetings from around the country. And they would travel in caravans with friends, with family, for safety, for protection, for fellowship. But if you're coming up to Jerusalem, let's say from the north, and you say, wait a minute, Skip, you had it wrong. You don't come up from the north, you come down from the north. No, they would come up topographically from the north. Because you see, Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea, which is north and a little bit to the east, is 1,290 feet below sea level. So they would go literally up a hill, about a 4,000-foot ascent to Jerusalem. Where they come from is a very hot, dry, arid place. And perhaps that's the illusion some scholars believe when it says when they pass through the valley of Baca. Because the word Baca means literally weeping or tears. And it's derived from the balsam plant, which sheds a, a very serous sap that looks like human tears. 
And these plants thrive in the drier regions of Israel. In fact, it's named, nicknamed the weeper. But this is a picture of worshiping pilgrims passing through difficult times as they make their way towards worship. Here's the idea. In between worship episodes, in between Sundays, during the week, when real life happens, when trials happen, when spiritually dry periods happen, that's the idea of coming to worship between those episodes. Once you get out of church and you hit the freeways and you hit work tomorrow and you go through your day and through your week, your faith is challenged often. You go through stuff and sometimes you even wonder, what's the use of the journey, Lord? This is difficult. And perhaps even in a literal sense, this morning you passed through the Valley of Baca. Maybe you had difficulties on the way to church, literally. Maybe a flat tire, maybe an argument in the car. And so you already come here with, oh, this is hard. What am I going to get out of this? It's been tough just making the pilgrimage, but I want you to look at verse 6. It says, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. In other words, the very place of difficulty itself becomes an altar from which they worship. They're worshiping on the way. They're not just thinking of what will happen once they get there. They make that dry period, that dry spell, a platform for them to worship. It's a picture of God's people turning sorrow into joy, turning tragedy into triumph. How? How do we do that exactly? Let me give you a couple of ways I've observed Christians do that. Way number one, let's call compensation. We are compensating for the pain that we feel by thinking of something else. It goes like this. Life is tough, I hate it, this is a dry, miserable time of my life, but at least I'm going to go to heaven. So I'm going to just clench my fists and, and bite my tongue and I'll make it to heaven. I'll compensate the pain now for what's coming up in the future. That's okay, but that's not the best. A better way than compensation is transformation. Transformation. That is taking the very experience itself and turning that into a platform for worship. Here's these pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, passing through these hot, dry valleys. They're not grimacing as they go. They're not saying, I hate this heat. I can't wait to get to Jerusalem. No, they've decided to make this hot, dry experience a spring of refreshment in their worship. Here's the picture. You're on your way to God's house, week to week, to encounter God. But in between those times, you meet real life. You go through the real trials. Yes, one day you'll make it to heaven, but it's going to be a while. It's way down the road for most of us. So what do you do until then? Well, you could compensate. I hate life, but at least I'm going to heaven. Or you could say, hey, how about pausing right here, right now, in the midst of this horrible situation and turning it into a praise session, making this a spring of refreshment? You know why? Because faith that is only future faith is a very inefficient faith. The faith that we have must be active and powerful right here. So the key is to turn the affliction into rejuvenation by adoration. 
stopping and praising the Lord. Can I give you an example of that in the Bible? There was a guy named Jacob. You probably remember the story well. It's from Genesis 28. Jacob was a scoundrel. He ripped off his brother. He ran away from his family. He's out in the desert after stealing his brother's blessing. He's down by Beersheba, which is pure, barren desert. There is nothing there to suggest the presence of God. There's no tabernacle, no temple, no pulpit, no piano, no worship team. He has a dream that night. He puts his head on a rock. And he has a dream, a vision of the angels of God descending and ascending a ladder into heaven. And he wakes up and he says this. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. I know it now. But the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And so he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. The Lord is in this place, this place of physical pain, this place of mental torment. The Lord's here. I'm going to worship here. Here's my altar. I'm not just going to wait for the future. I'm going to let the Lord refresh me now. Samuel Rutherford, who wrote in the 1600s, said, when I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Back in 1932, life was hard back in South Dakota. In fact, that summer, uh, the heat was over 100 degrees several days on end. There was a drought. Um, grasshoppers had destroyed many of the crops. And, and most of the towns were shutting down, especially the little hard-hit town of Wall, South Dakota. Ted and Dorothy Hudstead were the owners of a drugstore called Wall Drug in Wall, South Dakota. They knew that people were leaving town and they weren't getting business. They were believers. So they prayed and then they thought, what could we do to get people to our store in the middle of nowhere? They thought of something interesting. They went 25 miles on the main road outside of town and posted a sign. Free ice water at Wall Drugstore, Wall, South Dakota. Now, that's not a big deal. Drugstores had been giving free ice water for generations. But these guys decided to advertise it. So 25 miles out of town was the sign, free ice water. Then they moved 10 miles out of town and said, hold on, it's only 10 miles to free ice water. And then five miles from out of town, five miles more, free ice water. They got so excited about this sign business, they went to Albany, New York, and posted a sign, only 1,725 miles to free ice water at Wall Drug, South Dakota. Now, you laugh, but if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. There are signs within hundreds of miles of this little out-of-the-place hole in the wall. Today, in an average summer day, they will see 15,000 people come through their doors in Wall Drug, in the drugstore in Wall, South Dakota, a town of about 800. Here's my point. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. We're all going to have tough stuff. We're all going to go through painful circumstances, but the attitude of misery, that's optional. They decided to make that their place, and they did. So as we make our journey through life, between these episodes of worship, don't, don't wait till Sunday. Let it happen there, right then, in gridlock, at the office, around the kitchen table, so that's the place of worship. 
the temple, the tabernacle, the courts. That's the peace of worship, this wonderful feeling of contentment that we have. That's the pilgrimage of these worshipers. Let's finish off the psalm and look at the preference for worship. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now remember, we said that the sons of Korah were assigned the job of being gatekeepers. They were the porters, security guards, ushers, whatever you want to call them. Gatekeepers in the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord. Now that doesn't sound like much of a job. It doesn't sound like a great, exciting position. It sounds, as you hear it, gatekeeper, doorkeeper, sounds sort of uneventful, rather boring. But understand that the psalmist is not complaining. He's rejoicing. In fact, he prefers it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to spend days in and days out in the tents of the wicked. In other words, I'm on staff with God. This is something wonderful. There's a principle here. When you have a love relationship with someone, tasks take on a whole different meaning, don't they? When you love someone, you do something for them out of love, not out of duty. Let's say you have a young couple, their boyfriend and girlfriend. He's a slob. She's a neat freak. Uh, he doesn't like to pick up after himself. His house, his apartment is a mess. But when he knows his girlfriend is coming over, those tasks become wonderful. She's coming over. I'm cooking for her tonight. It becomes a joy to do what otherwise would be seen as simply menial tasks. They take on a whole different texture when in a love relationship. That's part of worship too. Part of worshiping God is serving God and serving God's people. Well, I don't want that job, that's hard. But I'll do it because I love the Master. I'm doing it out of love for Him. Charles Spurgeon used to say, God's worst is better than the devil's best. That's the idea here. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. If that's the worst job, it's better than the best thing the world could ever have to offer me. It's a joy to serve Him. What prompts successful businessmen who have lots of disposable income to give up their weekends and come and usher at a church or put up cones and direct parking? What prompts them to give up a week and give a Bible study at their local fellowship? What would ever prompt a doctor who could make it big here to leave here and go overseas as a missionary doctor? They love it. They prefer it. It's not like, do I have to? It's like, do I get to? There was a missionary doctor who came out of an operating room in North Korea, out on the mission field one afternoon. Sweat was coming down his forehead. It was very hot. He was obviously very fatigued. And he sighed as he came out of the operating room. He was an American doctor. And an onlooker said, excuse me, doctor, how much money would you have made in the United States for such a delicate operation as you just performed? He said, oh, probably over 20,000 bucks. 
He said, and what do you expect to get from this woman that you just operated on? He said, I expect to get her gratitude and my master's smile. It was worth it. I would rather do that. So that's Psalm 84. I've entitled it, I've just got to go to church. And I want to sum up, I want to sum up those four things that we just looked at. And sort of give you four bullet points if you're taking notes to walk away with. Number one, establish the priority. Make the priority about Him. I'm doing this for Him. I'm coming because I want to worship Him. It's not about the building or the personality or the convenience. The priority is the Lord alone. So establish the priority. Number two, aim for tranquility. Expect when you come to fellowship to sort of breathe this sigh of, I'm accepted here. I can come even though I have this sense of I'm not worthwhile or I'm restless and I can come and be ministered to by the Lord and by his people here. Aim at tranquility. Number three, avoid being a casualty. You know what I mean by a casualty is where worship only takes place this Sunday and the next Sunday and the following, but not in between. The world can beat you up, chew you up, and spit you out. So let those difficult times be those altars of worship this week. And then number four, commit to activity, to serve. Find a place to serve and do it as unto the Lord with all of your hearts. After all, God didn't save us to be a celebrity, but to be a servant. And that's what we're all, all called to do. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we could come here this morning, and even though it was a bit confusing and the second service started a bit late, we're just grateful that we have a place where your people gather, where songs are brought before your throne, and by those songs we can unload any burden that we might have, any anticipation we might feel, and know that we are accepted and loved and cared for. We can find a home in your presence. And so I pray for these good people of this fellowship, Ocean Hills, and pray that you would continue to do these works in their hearts as we grow together.